Welcome to The Uplift, the show that celebrates women leaders who lift each other. I'm Carol Shabrias, a higher ed executive on a mission to help women leaders restore joy and meaning to their daily work. After more than 25 years of serving colleges and universities, I am over higher ed's culture of busyness and burnout, especially for women leaders. Leadership churn is no joke and no wonder. Higher ed works us to exhaustion, leaving no space for the passion that drew us to it in the first place. And so many of us find ourselves caught in what can feel like a meaningless slog to a paycheck. From quit lit to the great resignation to the great reassessment, women are fleeing higher ed in search of joyful, integrated lives. And yet we know this work matters. The ways we shape young minds and prepare them to be intelligent and informed global citizens, that matters. So if you're a woman committed to higher ed and also seek joy and balance in your life, welcome. This podcast is for you. Hey there, welcome to episode 11. On our campus, this is maybe the last quiet week of the summer, but we are definitely gearing up for the beginning of the school year for traditional students. Most fall semester classes don't start for a few weeks, I know, but we're already beginning to welcome many undergrads to campus. I've seen student athletes back, and student life is gearing up to welcome incoming first year and transfer students. They always come to campus early to get settled into housing and get connected with each other and get ready for their big new exciting college adventure. I love this time of year, and I'm both reveling in this last little bit of peace and also super ready to feel the energy and the hope that kicks off a new beginning. For this week's episode, I'm going to pick up where we left off last time and preview part two of the Leadership Academy, which is called Getting Clear with Others. As I did last week, I'll give you a sneak peek into the content, talk about the authors and ideas that I've woven together to create this module, and also share the reasons why we're approaching leadership development this way. And like I did last week, today I'll kick things off with a story that will get to the why of module two. In 2003, nearly 20 years ago, I was building a writing program for an online university. I had a weird title, which wouldn't make any sense, but essentially I was doing the work of a writing center director, a director of composition, and a director of writing across the curriculum. I worked with an amazing team of more than 20 faculty from around the country, and we were singularly focused on ensuring that our students' educations included learning how to write for their fields, whatever that field might be. In that capacity, I was at the annual Conference of College Composition and Communication, or 4Cs if you're in the know, and I found myself in a pre-conference workshop sitting in a hotel conference room in a large circle of writing program administrators talking about, I don't know, whatever we were talking about. I honestly don't remember. But in that conversation, I shared that I had been trained at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And someone, someone I didn't know, someone in the circle looked at me with big wide eyes and said, oh my gosh, you trained with Brad Hughes? And literally, like, the whole circle lit up. Now, I don't often use names on this podcast because sometimes I'm sharing sensitive stories about things that I think are crappy, but I do like using folks' names when I'm talking about how awesome they are, and Brad Hughes is awesome. I know dozens, I might know hundreds of people who have worked with him or for him, And I don't know a single person who doesn't have mad respect for Brad. 
Brad is amazing. So I'm sitting in that conference room and people in the circle, there were like, I don't know, 30 of us, start telling stories about Brad. Brad had spoken at a conference they attended, or Brad had come to their campus and offered a training, or they had a favorite colleague who trained under Brad. And so this colleague carried these mystical, magical powers, the aura of Brad. It was amazing to sit in that circle of strangers and hear them all sing Brad's praises. And then one person looked at me directly and asked me a single question. How does Brad do it? What she meant was, how does Brad get people across campus from different disciplines to willingly collaborate, to change their practices, to be excited about getting better, and to promote the work of the Writing Center and the Writing Across the Curriculum program? How does he build trust and respect? How does he build the center's reputation so that the director is admired and not shunted off into a corner of campus and blamed when students on campus don't write well enough? What's the magic? What's the secret to Brad's success? And I couldn't answer her. I sort of flubbed my way through an answer by talking about Brad's MO. Like, he is the best listener I've ever met. He listens intently. He asks genuine questions. He guides people to find their own answers. But I knew that describing his behaviors was not the same as revealing his super magical secret superpowers. And I couldn't name those. And I was kind of gobsmacked by that. Here was someone I really admired who had taught me so much about working with faculty and navigating campus culture and being a great teacher and also being a decent human being. And I couldn't name how he did those things. I think about that moment a lot. It taught me the importance of telling our stories, telling our own stories, articulating our what as well as our why, and being transparent about our motives and reasons. Brad was superb at helping us see the what's and the why's of our work as writing program administrators, but he didn't articulate, at least not that I heard, the what's and why's of his leadership practice. He may have done it since then, maybe with people he mentored after my time, but at that point in my career, I hadn't seen it. And I'm guessing it hadn't occurred to him to do it because it's not really a thing we do. But over the years, I've come to see how powerful it is for our teams when we can articulate not only the what's and the why's of our daily work as a team, but our personal what's and why's as leaders. What motivates our leadership decisions? How and why we show up every day in whatever ways we do? Why we fight for the things we fight for and why we don't fight for other things? All that stuff. And this is what module two is all about, bringing your values, everything represented in the leadership compass you designed in module one into full view for your team. So whereas module one was hyper-reflective, module two is focused on actions you can take, strategies you can use, tools and frameworks you can apply to particular kinds of situations, and things you can practice actually doing yourself and you can teach your team to do. How you enact all of this will be different from how other folks enact it because you're going to make your own choices grounded in your personal values, always working toward your personal North Star. Okay, so let me break that down a little bit for you. This module has about eight lessons and some of them have multiple activities. Each of them is grounded in a framework and in each lesson, you will develop a plan applying this framework to an actual situation in your workplace. 
You're going to think about your current team, your current projects, your current challenges, and you'll strategize how to approach whatever is in front of you right now by using these frameworks. In the first couple lessons, we'll explore the framework of building trust. Here, I draw primarily on the work of Stephen M. R. Covey, who's built an empire on teaching people and organizations how to build trust, um, starting with his book, The Speed of Trust, and blowing it up from there. We'll walk through the foundations of trust-building behaviors. I'll teach you a tried-and-true method for building, sustaining, or if necessary, repairing trust with others. And then you'll identify a situation in your current leadership practice where you could apply that framework and you'll develop a plan to do so. And I can tell you, I have been intentionally doing this myself and teaching others to do this for about 10 years. And I've seen for myself and for others, this works. It can feel a little corny and a little formulaic, but it works. Then the next framework we'll dig into is psychological safety. Psychological safety and trust are deeply interwoven. A team without trust won't feel safe enough to take risks, to experiment, to try new things, because they won't feel safe enough to risk failing or saying something that someone else might disagree with. But when psychological safety is high, trust can also be high. And then teams get really creative, they get more effective and efficient, and to me this is maybe the most important, they find joy in their work. There's a ton of research about psychological safety and endless readings and resources you can immerse yourself in. But for our purposes, I draw primarily on the work of Teresa Amabile and Stephen Kramer, two psychologists who study human behavior at work. They conducted a huge study. They recruited 238 people on 26 teams in seven different businesses across three different industries. The teams were composed mostly of knowledge workers, people whose job is to solve complex problems, so kind of like you. Most of the teams participated throughout the course of a single project, each one lasting about four months. For the study, each team member received a daily email with just a few questions, and they were always the same, about their work day. Most questions asked for numerical ratings about the person's inner work life that day, their perceptions, their emotions, and their motivations. But the most important question was open-ended, and it was this. Briefly describe one event from today that stands out in your mind. That daily email prompt yielded roughly 12,000 individual diary reports every single day. From this treasure trove of data, Amabile and Kramer discovered patterns that led them to identify the key elements of an employee's inner work life. So in this lesson, we're going to explore psychological safety through this lens of our team's inner work life. We'll discuss the key three events that are particularly potent forces supporting employees' inner work life and explore how you as a leader can create those events. And then in this lesson, you'll develop a plan for creating those events for your team in order to build the kind of psychological safety your team needs to thrive. After that, we'll tackle crucial conversations, and our framework is derived from the book, Crucial Conversations, Tools for Talking When the Stakes Are High. The book's been around for a while. I know many of you've worked with it already, so for some of you, this might be a refresher. But the Crucial Conversations framework is a great fit for the Leadership Academy because it is grounded in storytelling. To have an effective conversation with someone when the stakes are high, you have to be very clear about the story you're telling yourself about the situation and also be open to the stories the other person brings into the conversation. And then your goal is to work through all of these stories to find a place of mutual understanding so that you can chart your path forward together. And then for us, since our leadership work is grounded in values, getting clear about the story you're telling yourself and charting a path with someone else, 
should always bring you closer to that North Star you identified in Module 1. So we'll spend this lesson learning how to use the framework by itself so you understand it, and then layering in our work on values so that you can personalize the framework to make it meaningful to you. Which then takes us to the fifth lesson, which is about listening. And for this lesson, I draw on the coaching framework of asking powerful questions. I've learned this framework a couple different ways. I've been a coachee, I've been coached. I have had three fantastic professional coaches in my career, as well as countless mentors who are kind of informal coaches for me, including Brad at UW-Madison. And all of these folks modeled asking powerful questions and then listening closely to the answers to help me find my own way. So in this lesson, we'll talk about the power of listening to people's answers when they are asked truly potent questions. I'll share a framework for creating a space where this kind of open, safe, and probing conversation can happen. And you'll identify a place in your work where you could apply this framework and then develop a plan to do so. Many of these lessons ask you to develop a plan that will likely focus on a single individual or a single aspect of your team. But in lesson six, we're going to open things up a bit and talk about meaningful gatherings. So it's more holistic. It's something you can use all the time in lots of different settings. So I want to talk about gatherings and I want to first be clear about what I don't mean. It is really easy to find advice and templates for running meetings, for creating agendas, for taking notes. And I'll confess, I love a well-run meeting. It is a thing of beauty, a near-extinct creature rarely seen in the wilds of today's workplace. But what we're going to talk about is bigger and more fundamental than the sorts of technical housekeeping related to organizing meetings. It's the question, why gather in the first place? Our framework for this lesson comes from the book, The Art of Gathering, How We Meet and Why It Matters by Priya Parker. The framework requires you to set aside the details of your gathering, forget about the place, the time, etc., and focus on the purpose and practicing generous exclusion, which means leaving out the people whose presence will detract from the purpose and designing a gathering that combines joy and purpose for those who are present. Now, this practice sounds like it's applicable to social gatherings, and it totally is. But oh my God, can we please start using it at work? I remember sitting at a large conference table with a group of guys. I was the only woman. This was like, I don't know, 2013, 2014. All the guys were vice presidents of large corporations or vice presidents at local universities. And we'd been convened as a sort of task force, and we were supposed to share our findings with government leaders at the regional and state levels. One of the guys from the private sector said very early in our first meeting that in six months, if we were still talking and not taking action, he wasn't going to continue. This was totally a dig at higher ed, which he called out as having a reputation for convening lots of meeting and doing lots of talking and not doing much else. And, you know, he wasn't entirely wrong. I mean, think about it. How many times have you sat in a room full of people who were there to talk? where there were people present who were not invested in the conversation and so derailed it, and where nothing came of the meeting, no action, no change, nothing. Or worse, how many standing meetings, say like a regularly scheduled meeting of a leadership team, are on your calendar because someone thought the group needed to gather on a regular schedule, but there's not actually any purpose behind the gathering. This, my friends, is a habit we can break. And this lesson will show you an alternative that can infuse your meetings with purpose, clarity, and joy. 
And yeah, you can take minutes. You know, you can stay organized. It's just that's not the point. The Art of Gathering framework is something you can use in any setting at all. Your one-on-one check-ins with team members, task force or committee meetings you lead, even family dinners. The applications are literally endless. So in this lesson, I'll share this framework and you guessed it, you will layer in your values and create a plan to design an intentional gathering of your own. And then the final lesson in module two will help you synthesize your action plans through the lens of, stay with me here, marketing. (laughs) Really, please just stay with me. I draw especially from Seth Godin's book, All Marketers Are Liars, which despite myself is a book I love. In this book, he makes the case that marketing is storytelling and that effective marketing both reveals the marketer's core values and speaks to the values of the audience, right? So if you've been listening to me, you can see why I love this book so much. It's fundamentally about alignment. The stories you tell when you market come from your values and are meaningful stories to your audience when they share those values. So in this lesson, you're going to develop a plan for telling powerful stories about your team leadership, right? Like this is the thing I started with. This is the thing I learned from my own inability to explain Brad Hughes's magic. I am not saying spend all your time talking about how awesome you are. Like if Brad thought that anything he ever did taught me to brag, he would be beside himself. That would suck. It would piss everybody off. Nobody wants to hear you do that. But all of us want to hear stories about what works. We all want to hear stories about how being true to our values and drawing on those values to create meaningful work for our team, where folks feel trusted and safe and are therefore creative problem solvers and do amazing things together. Oh my God, we all want to hear those stories. Those stories give us life. We'll listen to those stories all day long. I have two reasons for wanting you to become a marketer for your own leadership. First, your team deserves it. Your team deserves to be publicly praised. We all want to be seen and recognized for our talents and gifts and contributions. It is human nature to want to be seen. And one of your primary jobs as a leader is to celebrate your team's successes both with them and when they're not in the room. Share your team's success stories in ways that are specific about the what and the why of what they accomplished. Your team's value to the institution will lift steadily over time when people know what they're doing, as will your team members' joy in the work and their sense of fulfillment. This is a powerful tool for mentoring and retaining your awesome team members. Secondly, you deserve to be recognized and seen for your accomplishments. And you don't need to wait and hope that someone else will do it because they probably won't. In higher ed, we are taught, I think in K-12, in all of education, we are taught implicitly and explicitly to wait for others to acknowledge us, to wait for someone to give us a grade, to wait to hear if our conference proposal was accepted, our research was published, to see if we get a glowing review of our recent production or our art installment. We're always waiting for others to validate us, and we are told to do this. But if you're surrounded, as many of us are, by average leaders who are either too busy or too insecure or too fearful or too inexperienced to heap the praise on you you deserve, 
and yet you're waiting for that recognition in hopes that it will lead to a raise or a promotion, honey, you're screwed. And trust me, I've been there. You're putting yourself, your success, your growth, your ability to live your fullest, best life at the mercy of others who are not invested in that. I see this everywhere in higher ed. I see it in annual performance reviews that are meaningless, in tenure denials that are based on personality conflicts, in promotions and new hires based primarily on the information that comes from the reference check or from biased interviews. I want you to have more control and influence over your leadership path. And one of the best ways to do that is to talk about the what's and the why's of the work you're doing. This is not sleazy self-promotion. You just need to tell the stories about the values behind your work and the amazing results your team achieves. I know you can hear how worked up I am, right? So in this lesson, I'll share the framework for developing stories like this. Come straight out of marketing. I'll give you a few examples, and then I'll ask you to develop a plan for starting to tell your own amazing stories. And there you have it, the Leadership Academy Module 2 in a nutshell. Module 2 is all about strategies for being clear with others while staying grounded in your values and creating a trusting, psychologically safe, and joy-filled workplace for you and your team. Next week, I'll share the nuts and bolts of Module 3, which is called Getting Clear on Purpose. And this is all about the ways you can shape the contours of your days, not just to stay organized, not just to get stuff done, but to truly focus on the key things you've prioritized as most meaningful to you, ensuring that the days making up your leadership practice are filled with clarity, purpose, and joy. All right. So see you next week, same time, same place for the next episode of The Uplift. Until then, have a terrific week and enjoy these last quiet bits of summer. 